Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Ms. Hansberry, I'd like to begin by discussing some of the problems you raised in A Raisin in the Sun. And I wonder, so that everyone will know what we're talking about, if you'd be kind enough to describe the story briefly. Well, what it involves is an examination of a family on the south side of Chicago, where I was born, who belonged to the lower classes, a family of domestic workers, who I hope are fairly typical of people who think that there is something more to do with your life than accept it as it is. Mm-hmm. The young son It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and this is a recording from 1961 of Lorraine Hansberry talking about her play A Raisin in the Sun. In terms of a statement, I think what the play uh, tries to say is that we really don't have very much in the world at all if we allow any aspect of money values to transcend the requirements that are necessary for human dignity. A Raisin in the Sun was the first show ever staged on Broadway, written by a Black woman. Today, it is still the most often produced show by a Black playwright. And it has just come back to the stage. A new production has just opened at the Public Theater here in New York City. And that's notable because, for those who aren't familiar, the public is where dozens of Titanic shows, ranging from a chorus line to Hamilton, were first produced. Hansberry was a towering presence in Black artistic and intellectual life in the mid-20th century. But her life and her work has, until quite recently, largely gone unexamined. Her close friend, James Baldwin, he is a household name. But why isn't she? And what can we learn from her even now? Princeton University professor and author Amani Perry has done as much as anyone to put those questions on the table. Her 2018 book, Looking for Lorraine was one of the first meaningful studies of Hansberry's life. And Amani was last on our show talking about Baldwin. So we got back in touch to ask her about Hansberry. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. So let's say I never heard of L- Lorraine Hansberry, which honestly many people really have not. How yeah. would you introduce her to me? I would introduce her as an intellectual, a groundbreaking Black woman playwright who thought deeply about the politics of class, race, and gender, and was passionate about capturing the lives of Black people and rendering them Mm. honestly. Honestly. She was extraordinary. Rendering them honestly. Say more about that. That's I feel like that's an important part of this conversation. Yeah. I mean, so Hansberry was an unapologetic leftist and she, you know, had a kind of a political sensibility about her work, but she didn't want 
the plays that she wrote to feel didactic. She wanted to be really honest about, you know, how Black people navigated poverty um, and exclusion. And Raisin in the Sun captures that. You know, this is very much a South Side, um, mid-20th century Chicago Black family. <laughs> and language and um, sensibilities and all of those things. And so the message comes through in how they each are trying to grapple with the conditions of their lives and also do something meaningful. The show is the story of the younger family. The father has died, and the mother wants to use his life insurance policy to buy a new home outside of the ghetto. But the White Homeowners Association in the neighborhood they want to move to finds out about them and offers the family money to stay away. And this causes the show's central tension as the family debates what to do, as each of them kind of sees this moment as an opportunity to pursue their version of freedom. Is it, is it fair, I think of it as sort of a meditation on whether the American dream, quote unquote, is ever even a viable idea for black people? It, it, like in the sense that like each family member has this dream, yeah. you know, and each dream is kind of their version, their strategy of how to hack the system that's not designed, that, you know, that's actually designed to destroy them. And yes. none of the dreams actually work out in the end. It's not a happy story, really. I think, you know, it's kind because on one level, right, so they, they buy the house and they're mm-hmm. moving into a neighborhood that doesn't want them, right? Uh, it's, it's not a happy ending in the sense that everything isn't tied up with a bow. Like they're not going to go and be sort of a, a middle class family that is embraced by a suburban community. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a sense in which, I mean, Hansberry talked about it as a play that had an affirmative message, meaning they refused to be cowed by the white folks in the neighborhood who were very clear, we don't want you here, right? So mm-hmm. uh, there's a resistance in it. So there's a kind of optimism with respect to that, although almost certainly they're going to face um, hostility and even brutality because Mm -hmm. residential desegregation Mm -hmm. was very violent in the Midwest, is the best way to describe it. It was the first play on Broadway written by a black woman. Um, Many have pointed out that that factoid, though, kind of understates the importance of this show in terms of theater history. Can you talk about that, like the way this production changed theater in general? Right. I mean, Hansberry was very uh, kind of explicit about wanting to do this. This was not, you know, the happy-go-lucky or conventional, she used to call the sort of stories with glandular Negroes singing songs that would kind of pull at the heartstrings in sentimentalist ways that when you saw Black people on Broadway, you know, uh, either singing or dancing, it was conventional. This was a drama. Mm-hmm. that, as James Baldwin, a dear friend of Hansberry's, talked about one of the first times you saw Black people on Broadway to see a play. And it was remarkable that people would pay for a ticket on Broadway when, you know, folks were poor. Yeah. Um, they could just go to the movies instead. So it opened space both for serious treatments of Black life and also for Black people to have a space as patrons mm. on Broadway. Mm. She really opened the door. Yeah. And, you know... There were people who sort of diminished its significance and tried to imply that, you know, she had somehow had some special treatment because she was a black woman. And she said that if that was the case, that would be sort of the first time in history that anybody (laughs) had given anybody anything just for being black. But last um, time, too. Right. (laughs) The first and last time. But it was it's a brilliant work and it's a timeless work. 
one of the premises of looking for Lorraine of, of your book is we know mm-hmm. still so little uh, about Lorraine Hansberry's life. She yeah. died very young at 34 of pancreatic yes. cancer. She did so much in that young time. But there's there's been so little scholarship of mm-hmm. her. Um, why is that? Why why do we? If this was such an important person, why do we know so little ab- about her and her impact yeah. on American culture? Part of it is that her archive was not fully accessible for many years. In part, I think because um, there was an effort by her executor Robert Nimroff, who had been her husband and who she divorced, but who continued to be a close friend, to protect her because Hansberry identified as a lesbian. Amani explains that Hansberry's ex-husband wanted to shield her legacy from the homophobia of the time because her archives are full of writing about her sexuality and her politics around that. So that's one thing. There's also the fact that she died so young that some researchers assume there just wasn't much to say about her. And then there was this particular mix of gender and political ideology that got in the way. I want to talk a little bit about the piece mm-hmm. that's the part of it was gender because yeah. in her lifetime, you know, uh, there were some important black male thinkers who rejected her. Um, it, yeah. it, what was their critique of her and how do you think that impacted uh, the legacy for so long in terms of how she was thought about? Yeah, I mean, so one of the the most vociferous critiques of Hansberry came from Leroy Jones and Mary Baraka, and he read A Raisin in the Sun as just a play about sort of white middle-class aspirations in blackface and really diminished her. Um, And then argued that, you know, she wrote a play like that because she was bourgeois. But later in life, realized he was wrong, right? (laughs) And I mean, basically took it back. But, you know, there was a lot, of that, this sort of um, misreading of her politically, um, which is really quite unfortunate because she she was deeply immersed in black political spaces. She fundraised for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. She was involved with them. She was mentored by Du Bois. I mean, she was and and Paul Robeson. I mean, she you know was very close to Nina Simone and James Baldwin, and so that diminishment, which may have partially been professional jealousy um, Mm. because she was so young and so accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about her relationship with James Baldwin. How did they meet? They actually meet when the actor's studio is putting on a kind of trial run of a play that he's written and she's sitting in the back of the theater and it's their performances happened and there's all these sort of powerful people in the theater world who are just eviscerating the play and saying it's terrible um, and Hansberry is this sort of little, you know, she's this tiny um, kind of delicate person and she stands up and she just gives it to all of these white critics who are attacking <laughs> him. And he says she was my savior. Mm. And that was all he would go to her and ask, you know, will you read this for me? And um, they were good for They argued, they laughed, they drank together. I mean, he really turned to her as someone he could be vulnerable with, especially about his work. Um, which is, you know, fairly remarkable. You know, they became friends before she was really famous, and he was understood as one of the best essayists in the country already, and yet he trusted her um, as an interlocutor, right, and as someone to 
to tell him honestly about his work. Uh, I mean, and I know from your work that she pushed him politically on thinking about black people, on capitalism, which is just so opposite of what people I think would think. You know, James Baldwin is now this... uh, this, He's an icon. He's an icon (laughs) of of black left thought, you know. Yeah, no. She she had to push him left. Absolutely. So she really wanted to talk about, about the politics of class and also international politics. And so she pushed him in that respect as well. Mm. Yeah. One of the things I think a lot of people know um, about her and about Lorraine Hansberry and her politics is this famous meeting that we know about because James Baldwin tells us about it uh, with Robert Kennedy in advance of the Civil Rights Act. Sure. So she was invited with a group of other sort of black artists and intellectuals to the Kennedy apartment on Central Park West and, and Rob RFK is there. And, you know, so it's like, it's Lena Horne, you know, it's um, Baldwin and Lorraine and um, various other folks who are there. And the Kennedys are, they what they want to have happen is they want these black sort of leading figures to actually get black people in Birmingham to stop creating so much confusion for them <laughs> politically because they're worried that the protests that are happening in Birmingham are going to have a negative impact on um, JFK's candidacy. And so the meeting is intended as a kind of effort to manage Black <laughs> resistance. And the interaction is initially sort of um, awkward. And Jerome Smith, who was in New York because he had been beaten by police officers in uh, Mississippi and had been seriously injured, so he was there for surgery, he was a, um, a civil rights activist, said something explicitly about their failure to protect civil rights organizers. And RFK was kind of dismissive of him. And this incensed Hansberry. And she sort of went in mm. on RFK and basically <laughs> said, you know, not only are we not going to do anything to quell black dissent, those black people in the streets speak for us. And what we want from you is a moral commitment to the cause of racial uh, justice. Um, and Baldwin describes her as this sort of this huge presence taking up the room, mm. right? And he's like, I know she was small, but it seemed like she filled the whole room. <laughs> and taking on the sort of moral leadership in that moment, they leave the meeting Um, And newspapers, the New York Times and and the like, report the meeting as having been a failure. But, you know, after that moment is actually the first time that JFK starts talking about a moral commitment to civil Mm. rights. So it has it has an impact. Um, Your work on her, you've I've heard you say is as much about. Uh, the story of Chicago is about her. And, and and I heard you say the only black Chicago could have generated Lorraine Hansberry or something to that effect. Tell me about yeah. that. Why, why, why is, why Chicago? I mean, Chicago is this extraordinary place, right? It's a primary migration destination. Uh, it's a place that, that I call a sort of site of the dream deferred, you know, and um, taking the language from, from Langston Hughes' poem Harlem, which is the basis for the, the title, A Raisin in the Sun, You know, so all these migrants come up from the deep south with all of these hopes and dreams and they confront a depth of inequality and segregation and racial exclusion that is extraordinary. And yet they continue to 
build and grow and imagine. And so, you know, she she comes of age in a generation that has been cradled by, you know, by not just Black aspiration, but Black resistance in so many ways. And that, I think, provides the kind of foundation for her, not just her intellectual imagination, but her political imagination. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we brought you here to talk to us about your work on Lorraine Hansberry, but I, before I let you go, I, I can't not bring up that you are due some congratulations for your most recent Thank book. You. you have been long listed for a National Book Award. I'm yeah. certain you're going to win. Uh, <laughs> the book is called South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation. Yeah. Um, and I just want to briefly ask you about that. I mean, you know, why, why is the South on your heart right now? Why Why this journey through the South? It does actually connect to Hansberry because one of the things that she said at the end of her life as she was dying, she said if she were well, she would go down south to see what kind of revolutionary she could be. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, as much as the south is described as this sort of backwards, other, less developed place, it actually is the heart of this nation. It is how the wealth of the nation was built. It is where the nation began, and it actually has always sort of set the pace of what we do, you know, and, and sometimes in ways that are quite tragic, but also it's a place where you have seen this sort of remarkable resilience and continued struggle, right, for a more sort of humane way of doing things. So the South is my home, you know, I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. It is my home. It's where the majority of my family is. I don't come from a great migration family. I mean, we, <laughs> me and my mom migrated, but the rest of my family largely didn't. Um, the majority of African-Americans have always and continue to live in the South. And so I feel like it's been given short shrift. And I think if we want to understand this country. We need to try to understand that place. And from the position of Black people, who in, in many ways have been the backbone mm. of the South, uh, a, a neglected, abused backbone, but a backbone of it through through U.S. history. So, mm. yeah. Well, Professor Amadi Perry... Thank you so much for coming back on our show uh, and sharing your wisdom uh, and your research uh, and your writing. Thanks so much. It's great talking to you. This is Notes from America. We're a production of WNYC Studios. You can follow the show wherever you get your podcasts and also find us on both Instagram and Twitter at Notes with Kai. That's Notes with K-A-I. Special thanks to WNYC's archivist Andy Lancet for the 1961 interview with Lorraine Hansberry that we started with. Our live engineers this week are Matthew Miranda and Milton Ruiz. Our team also includes Karen Frillman, Vanessa Handy, Regina Dahir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Jared Paul. I'm Kai Wright. If you heard anything you want to comment on or ask about tonight, email me at notes at WNYC.org. Bonus points if you send it as a voice note. Otherwise, I will talk to you here next week. Thanks for spending time with us.